Mickey scopes out the present, shakes out the past, and keeps an eye out on the future. This is the Racing with Bruno podcast. Now, from Lexington, Kentucky, here's Bruno DiGiulio. And welcome for the Breeders' Cup. How to prep for the Breeders' Cup podcast. I'm racing with Bruno, and I've got Michael Goodrich and Pete Renato on board with me. Guys, thanks for coming on board. Thanks for having us, Bruno. Hey, Bruno. I'm going to talk about a little list that I made, guys. I put a little outline together on how to go prep uh, for the Breeders' Cup. Now, in our prior discussions, we've talked about replays, and and, uh, I brought up the history, um, and and Pete brought up um, little things about the turf course we needed to know. And but when do you get into the horses? Well, replays in history is very important, right, guys? Part of the equation, no doubt. It's one of the tools in the toolbox for sure. What, what did you say, Pete? <laughs> toolbox. Oh, okay. I don't know. It came out really funny because it sounded like like it was a different language. That was, you know, maybe it's my hearing. Maybe I'm going deaf. I don't know. But um, what are you doing tonight, Pete? I'm walking around Manhattan, uh, getting my exercise in because I know once I sit down with these pre-entries and replays, I won't be doing much other than sitting in front of a computer for a week and a half. <laughs> You're not going to see the light of day. Um, so... <laughs> So how's the weather over there tonight? I know you guys have been getting a lot of rain. As in, it's pre-fall. It's uh, it's great. Every everything's nice. It's uh, couldn't ask for anything better. It rained a lot yesterday, but now uh, we're okay. Hopefully, we'll be dry at Belmont tomorrow and on the turf. But we did get a lot of rain in the last <coughs> day, so uh, I might be ambitious. They may not be back on turf till the weekend. Well, well, Pete, here we are. We're talking about weather. The one thing about being in California, we don't have to worry about the weather for the Breeders' Cup. So that's a positive thing to not have to worry about. Um, having said that, we're going to go right to our phones and we're going to go look at our the, the, the next week worth of weather out in California. And uh, for the entire week, 68 during the day, 54 at night, steady, all the way through next Friday and not a cloud in the sky. So... Thank you, California, for staying true to your weather. Um, so, history and replays. I think they go hand in hand. Uh, Pete, we looked at um, we looked at distances for the the distances are a little different at Del Mar. They run the mile. They run the mile race in a uh, uh, the the Breeders' Cup Juvenile uh, on turf and Phillies turf. They're both at a mile where uh, at other tracks have been a mile and a 16th. The Philly and Mare turf are, is a mile and an eighth. Am I correct on that? And yeah, the other is the mile. Uh, yeah, the mile and an eighth in the Philly and Mare turf, which sometimes is a mile and three sixteenths at other tracks. Um, the mile and a half will start in the regular place. It always starts down the backside. Um, 
So at Delmar, you get some different scenarios than you would get other places. So, Pete, you um, and, and Mike, will you guys be revisiting that Delmar Breeders' Cup four, uh, uh, five years ago and getting an idea, just refreshing your memory, how, how the races were run? I'll go to Pete first. I think it's absolutely relevant, especially when you're looking at Euros and seeing how that extra, you know, 16th may affect the outcome for sure. And, 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 and Michael, we know Pete is in New York and he's really walking around Manhattan with all those no. sirens behind him, you know? <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, I know. We get the sound yeah. of, of the New York right here, the Big Apple, you know, Gotham City. Um so, Pete, so yeah, I'll, so, I'll I'll look back and see how you know how horses won races at Del Mar at the last you know at the last Breeders' Cup and how certain races went and how they you know just how they how they worked out you know obviously it's a different turf course as Pete mentioned so I'll definitely take a peek. Uh, also, it's a very narrow turf course. Um, if you're running, if you're going into Breeders' Cup turf sprints or the juvenile sprints which I don't think the juvenile sprints would be as large a field as a Breeders' Cup turf sprint. They're, the outside posts are really relatively starting on the main track. I mean, they're almost on the, on the outside fence. So, um, Pete, you made some comments to me over, during the day about the Breeders' Cup. Uh, I mean, the five for long turfs at Del Mar. You paid a lot of attention to them. The statistic that stands out is that during the summer meet, uh, the, the one and two posts were winning more than 50% of the races at that specific meet. Now, I haven't looked back years past. I'm just looking at this summer. Um, but that was the case this summer. Now, let me ask you, um, did you look at fields that were bigger than 12 fields, the 12 horses? Um, the reason being is number one, looking on the outside post, but number two, how do those inside posts fare in those large fields? Because if you break bad from the one or two, uh, at Del Mar in a large field, you're done. Uh, and I can say that was the Christophe Clement horse. Remember that ran in, uh, 2017. Yeah. I can't remember his name. He got completely yeah. left. And he had to come around the whole field, and he ended up fast closing third, couldn't get there. And he was probably the sharp, a sharp horse going into that race that year. Um, so even though inside post positions did well during the sprint, during the, during the summer, do you think that the fields were much shorter than what we're going to see? Oh, absolutely. There, a lot of the fields were shorter. You know, and again, that's I, I, I don't I don't ever want to be someone that oversimplifies uh, any of these things. It, 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 again, going back earlier, Explain it's that. one Explain tool. That. It's one tool in the toolbox. You know, if you if someone's a, you have a Monsler Wesley Ward juvenile. But of course, is really breaking from, especially if it's a speed horse, you know, maybe it could cross over. But it's just something to think about, you know, especially when you're putting like pick fours and pick fives and pick sixes together and, and you're over budget and you need to start slicing somewhere. That's when I start to look at some of these angles 
uh, when I have to rem- eliminate a horse or, or, ch- or choose a spot where I, I need to be narrower or wider and the like. And, but it's, y- y- you can't, you can't really rely on one or two factors, you know, to, to be a winner at this game, you, you've got to look at all of these things, weigh them in certain way that, you know, works for you. Um, but it's definitely something you have to con- consider. And Mike, how do you approach that? You know, what Pete's saying is, you know, it's, he plays, it's like a probability, right? I'm sure if he's looking at two or three horses and one of them, and he likes them both. And one has the inside post in the sprint and he's got a little speed. Like he remembers, hey, this kind of fits that profile and, and he uses it. And I feel like that's what good horse players do, right? Like they, you know, when you're trying to make a decision, you find something you like and you might like something else. But then you use those extra things. Oh, he's training great. And he's got the inside post. And you start to, you know, they get little plus marks next to them because they start to fit in certain boxes that say that that they they should win that race. So I think that's what Pete's kind of saying. It's the same type of thing. We're trying to figure out the best edge to find who's going to run the best race that day. And what what things are going to benefit that. You know, is it the post? Is it their speed? You know, they got the right jockey that's going to get them out of the gate right. So I think all those things are in the back of your head and you have to factor them in. But then if you have a beast horse that you think is just better than everybody, then the post doesn't matter. You know, like kind of what Pete said. Good horses overcome adversity, right? Well, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, um, the one thing that I know that horse players as general horse player will do is will bring in angles. Like for example, you'll have a horse starting at a mile you know, and, a, and, 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 and a quarter on the rail and you'll hear, Oh, but he drew the rail. And you know, you're looking at statistics and you're looking, for example, at a mile and a quarter, usually there's a long three eighths of a mile run to the turn that real position doesn't mean anything but horse players have a tendency to regurgitate what they hear no matter the circumstance um oh but he drew the rail oh you know like for example inside speed does well at keeneland around two turns oh but he drew the rail um or at gulfstream park with the sprinting at six furlongs the rail wins 22 percent oh but he drew the rail and, and I think horse players get themselves in trouble by making such generalized um, decisions based on something they heard. And, and I think that hurts players. And as I believe, as Pete said, good handicap. Oh, you said it, Michael. Good handicappers. Well, I'm going to tell you guys, good handicappers are few and far between now. If you're looking on social media, because the good handicappers ain't going to be on there telling you ain't, ain't going to tell you much because because everybody's on there and and you get drowned out or, or, you know, if you're a good handicapper on social media, you'll never survive all the all, all, all the hackers on there because they all they're all going to try to knock you to shreds, you know, so. A lot of good people don't go on there, but if you go on social media, you'll get all of these bad habits that, that people follow. And all these bad habits are turning some good, decent handicappers 
to complete dumbed down handicappers. They're dumbed down because of social media. So as a whole, I I think now if you're smart and you know what you want to do, you don't read anything on social media that makes any kind of any kind of um, uh, uh, handicapping statements. You just don't follow that and you don't let it get into your head. That's my little spill about how social media ties into these big events. And, and you really have to be careful on not getting, worked in, work, uh, getting hooked into that particular part of social media. Uh, now, I, the way I look at social media, guys, I look at social media for information like scratches, uh, nuggets on, on, on maybe a horse, that uh, videos of a horse, like this example last year. Uh, there was a video posted of Simply Ravishing two days before the race, and she looked absolutely emaciated. She had lost so much weight, she did not look right. That's what I use it for. Um, use the information that I can take and I can translate into my own language, into what I'm seeing visually and going from there. Now, Pete, what do you use social media for in, in the scope of these big events? Uh, you know, when there's guys on there that I know have big followings and they start to tout a horse, I look at it as an opportunity where I, I can get a general sense of where the odds are going to go. And again, you know, Breeders' Cup's a little tricky because the pools are so big. And so you don't really know how much an influencer can affect it. But, you know, when you start seeing posts and people agree and more agreement and more agreement and more agreement, I'm, I'm going to assume that that thing is going to get bet down. Um, and, you know, and, and the value is not going to be there. You know, the game's about value and it's about being contrarian and finding your spots. And um, so, you know, I, I almost use it as a as a negative. Uh, I wouldn't say necessarily throwing, throwing, totally throwing these horses out, but at least knowing that the value is going to disappear when you start to see lots of pundits pushing something that you thought had value beforehand. Um, yeah, you know, value is in the high of the beholder, as you know, Michael and, and Pete. But that that's a good point. That's an excellent way to look at it. I can tell you something, guys. I see somebody liking a horse that I like. I just go, okay, scratch him off. You know? Yeah, no chance. No chance. And there's certain people on Twitter that when they put a a, a a horse they like, and I like, that horse has no chance, you know, because they're 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 track record. And Michael, how do you use social media in these big events? So you you know what, Bruno? When it comes to betting horses and studying horses, I really don't listen to anyone's opinion. I really just don't. You know, I just. I, I use clues from guys that I think are really good. You know, like when you have a, a four-star work on a horse that you like, that you thought is doing well, you know, uh, guys that I know are really good will say, hey, I like this guy. But I, I don't use social media for that. It's more enjoyment. I don't want it in my head. I want to have a clear mind. I don't want to hear in the back of my head that this guy likes this horse when I'm looking at it. You, you know what I mean? Like, I want to make my own decision. If, if things start to get where I can't figure out who I like and I have to dig deeper, you know, that's when I start to look and see what some of the guys like. You know, what's Bruno like here? 
but I, I just feel like for me doing this, it's just a bad habit. Like I, if you go bad and then you get off your own stuff and then you start to get good and you miss it because you're, you know, you're just not, you're chasing, right? Like either you're good and you're going to make money or you're not right. Like, so I, I try to, I try to keep it out of my head to be really honest. And I, and I, I want to think about things with a clear mind. And when I have a hard time figuring it out is when I start to do the next step and I'll look at what you're thinking on the works and, you know, some of these really good handicappers will say they like a horse in a race and you'll say, Oh, I remember that guy. He's a good guy. And it's a little oddball of a pick. So that's kind of my take on social media. It's for entertainment purposes only. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you bring up some great points. Um, I've always walked to my own beat of a drum. Anybody that knows me, I, I've always been the little drummer boy that went, you know, that went off on his own. Um, and I don't, I don't, I, I like a, I like a good case where I like a, a, somebody that makes a case for the horse and then likes the horse. There is an epidemic for handicappers that they like a horse and then they make a case for it. Um, and those are the handicappers that always there's you ever heard those guys they're on TV, TV all the time you know and they always say it yeah <laughs> like like it's an exclamation point like I look at the TV and I go well, how do you know you know um, so a lot of I, I, you're right. And, and, and at times it, it just really irritates me and I have to mute, turn it on, put it on the mute button. Um, because there's a lot of information being sold, you know, being sold to the, uh, to the players that is absolute bullshit. It's, it's bullshit. And it's being first fed to horse players. Um, as I mentioned earlier about the rail. You, your horse, the rail will be winning at 23% at Gulfstream or at Churchill, and you'll get guys get on television going, buddy, drew the rail. And I'm like, don't these guys look at percentages? Don't they look at the stats? And, and, and that could be a pet peeve for me. The pet peeve is that I think there's so much bullshit that you can't help, if you follow that, be a bad handicapper. If you want to be a good handicapper and you want to handle the Breeders' Cup, you almost, like Pete said, not see the light of day for a day and a half, for a year and for a week and a half, you know? And I know Pete, Pete. Pete will not see the light of day, you know? I don't care if Gina Lola Brigida showed up in, in a bikini from 1960 and walked into his house. Well, maybe if she did, he would see the light of day. But <laughs> you get my point. And people, there's people out there going, who's Gina Lola Brigida, you know? Including me. Mm. You don't uh-huh. know who she is? No. I do. Uh-huh. I have no idea. You know, Pete, Pete made another great point, though, Bruno, about – he made it earlier when we were talking about how you win at this game and picking these horses that no one else kind of sees. And it could be for second or third or even fourth in, in, in these exotic bets. You know, everyone sees the favorite and, you know, oh, he looks like he should win. And the guy that digs deep and finds that 20 or 30 to one shot that runs his best race 
and gets second or just gets up and wins. You know, you might lose more races than you win, but the one that you hit covers many more than that. As opposed yeah. to winning on you know three or four races just playing the favorites. So I think Pete, you know, made a comment before that maybe not everyone could hear, but having those outsized gains where others aren't seeing it because they're not doing the work and they're not digging, looking back and looking at all the angles and, you know, crossing horses out that they think can't win. You know, that's where you, you get that value when you're locked in your room for a week and you're, you know, doing the work, you know, and and I think that's kind of what Pete, you know, I think Pete's right. Like you're not going to win in this game hitting favorites on a regular basis. I think you get, you got to find those, those bigger numbers. Yeah, yeah you don't, and you don't have to be us. right that often either, you know, when you approach the game that way, um, you, you know, and you can be right once in a while, you know, like Bruno, that's you right. had you had Tommy on last week and that's how he plays. You know, he looks for opportunities with tremendous value that he can smash a ticket and he may go a couple of weeks and not not hit anything and then he'll hit for one hundred thousand dollars. And so, you know, you, to, to really be a long term winner. You have to understand you need to do the work, stay regimented, make a smart decision. And after that, you know, it's, sometimes you're going to get the trip. Sometimes you're not going to get the trip. But if, if you stay consistent with the process, you're going to win more than you lose. Absolutely. And Pete, you know, I've been around you and I know how, how deep you get into a card. Um, I have a tendency to the bigger the day. Um, the easier I make it on myself. I think study long, study wrong, you know, sometimes. Um, and I, I, I use my gut feeling and on, on a lot of races. Like, for example, uh, we, watch, we talk about watching replays. Um, watch the replays on, and I'm not going to name it because I want people to come, which I'm going to do a shameless plug on, on our Breeders' Cup Zooms that are going to uh, are be next Wednesday and Thursday. Uh, the Breeders' Cup package is $99.95. Not only do you get the two Zooms, you also get the whole week of card at Del Mar, and you get the Breeders' Cup, of course, with the workout reports and everything. So you get five days of racing. But also, you can come on the, on the Zoom, and I hope that Pete and you, Michael, will join us Friday night. We're going to do a Zoom where we talk about um, – I cannot repeat what Pete just texted me. <laughs> anyway, um, so <laughs> I sent him a picture of Gina Lola Brigida, okay? I sent him <laughs> too, okay? All right. Um, anyway, he's going through a – Peter's going through a phase right now. <laughs> phase. So uh, um, when, when, I, when we're going to do a, the Zoom Friday night, and uh, everybody that signs up for the Breeders' Cup package is invited to it. And we're going to be looking at the, the, the European races. We're going to be looking at uh, the, the, some of the replays from the, from the Fridays. We're going to kind of do a uh, – uh, we're going to do this prep that you guys are, and I are talking about. We're going to do this live on our Zoom Friday night. And everybody that signs up will be able to come. And if they can't do it that night, they can get the replay and watch it at home. However, there was a two-year-old that won, and I watched the replay. And at first, when I watched it, I went, okay, he won okay. 
But then when I watched it again, I saw something in the early part of the race where the two-year-old wanted to run out of the gate and two other horses were hell bent on getting the lead and the rider gently brought him back and the horse responded so kindly to where he just came right back to him. He moved him around horses, put him outside. He was, uh, you know, and he was basically just off the pace and went around them and won easily. What, and a lot of people will say, well, yeah, well, he came around, you know, and, and he got a good trip. What my point of watching that replay is to get an understanding of how that two-year-old handled the rider telling him what to do. And he absolutely, um, he absolutely responded to everything the rider asked him to, you know? And I really thought that that was a huge key for me in my handicapping. It kind of almost made up my mind. Um, and then I went to see another work uh, workout, and I'll tell you what it was. It was Corniche that I saw the work, and they went from the pole, and Corniche was dragging that rider hard. And I know what I know. Baffert got in their ear and said, "Slow down, guys, slow down," and they slowed it down some. But what I saw is Corniche wanting to go, and that was another point that I made in my mind about him, about what he wants to do. If I take these two horses and put them next to each other and Corniche wants to go, I know the other horse is going to sit. And that, to me, is very important on how I view the race. So it's not about trips. It's not about trouble for me. It's about how the horse responds to jockey handling. Um, oh yeah, I don't know if you guys have had any chance to look at European horses. Probably not. Um, but... I've heard a lot of things about certain horses um, coming from, for example, um, I'm going to look at right now. Um, is the horse pronounced Yabar? Uh, he's, uh, he won it in New York. Um, I'm pulling him up right now. So I look like I know what I'm talking about. Uh, we're looking at the Breeders' Cup turf. Uh, no help, guys. No, I uh, no help. I'll pull. No, you guys, uh, you guys are useless. I have it right here. Researching the woman that was showing up in my apartment uh, to distract me from the Breeders' Cup. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's Yibar. It's Yibar. Yibar. Yeah, Yibar. Right. Yibar. Yeah, okay, we need to get Pete's head back in the game now, Pete. You're now really wondering about if she showed up, if you would, if you would, you would actually see the light of day. And you know, it right. really would come down to my overall feel for the sequence, right? Like, so I look at it and say, you know what? There's, I can, I can cap this for twenty hours. I'm not hitting it. Then I'm more likely to answer the door for Gina. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> anyway, uh, Ebar, um, from what I understand, Ebar had outworked. The two horses for uh, Charles, uh, the two horses that Appleby, I believe, ran in the um, in the Arc de Triomphe, and he's very interesting because I thought he won very, very well. Didn't he get left in New York? 
crickets. You I'm not he... sure, Bruno. I think he did. Re-ask re, re that question after we have a couple. You know, the you know pre-end just came out today. It's going to take at least a day or two, but we'll we'll, we'll answer oh, that question in a couple of days. Yeah, you know, but... I use I usually to go to racing Bruno at the works, and I type in the horse's name, and I'll see Bruno's been following him, and it'll tell me that where he's been. <laughs> yeah, well, Ebar, you know, I mean, you've got Tarnawa running in there. You've got um, uh, you got a Japanese horse loves only you. Um, Love has been nominated um, in, in, in that particular race. You've got domestic spending. But to me, a horse like Ebar, I'm going to follow up on that information. He had outworked all the, the good horses that ran in the Arc de Triomphe uh, that, that were in, in his barn. So if that's true, that's a very and, – and, and they picked out this one to go in there. It's very interesting. Uh, to, to, and we're going to look at that Friday night. On, on our Zoom, we're going to look at all these horses. Like, for example, we're going to talk about, we're going to actually look at also uh, for the the Breeders' Cup mile turf, and I'm like flipping. Oh, Phillies and Mare. <clears throat> Philly and Mare on the turf. And and we're, you know, I'm going to, we're going to be looking at the, the uh, Adoraya, uh, I, 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 I didn't pronounce that, Adoria. The winner from last year, Odaria. Um, she's she's all, she's back this year, um, and I'm going to go look at her races in, in, in you know in, in Europe. Uh, I want to go see. Um, I want to go see Tarnawai again. I want to see Teona, the Irish bred. I want to go take a look at Love, and because when Love runs a race, Love is going to be really tough. So I want to go through all these horses. I want to go look at the Aiden O'Brien La Jaconda. Um, you know, and we're going to be doing this Friday night. So this is the, the shameless plug for the Friday night uh, Zoom. And it's part of our Breeders' Cup package uh, that we, we sell at RacingWithBruno.com. I think it's worth your money. You get, you get all the races for a week. And, and you guys have been on for those, for those Zooms. I think those Zooms have been fantastic, not only for the players, but for me, too. Because it makes me go over a lot of stuff that sometimes, you know, you kind of, you know, you know, knock on the door, you stop looking at a replay, you go answer it, you're busy for a couple of hours, you know, and, and you, you end up missing it. That's life, you know. It's a life as, as a horse player, but they are very informative Zooms, I agree. Yes. So, Bruno, I have a question for you come Breeders' yeah. Cup Day. You see a jockey, you know, for example, I guess uh, Pratt is going to come off of United now and ride Chad's horse. Does it matter to you? Like, is he, do you, you know, do you, does, that, does something like that factor in your decision-making where the jock I, decides to go? Well, I, I, I think – you you look at, at at Pratt that I think he's positioning himself to move back east, the way he's doing things. Um, so I, I I really I really kind of look at the horse instead of looking at the move. Um, United ran huge behind uh, bricks and mortars two years ago. But is it the same horse? Um, yeah. You know, what this will – and, Pete, I want to ch chime in on this. Uh, when 
when something like this happened, that horse's odds are going to float up. And maybe somebody can get as much out of him that Pratt got. Because they're all top jocks. Yeah. Does it know who he's, who he's going to be on? Uh, who's going to be on United? It's expanding. Oh, he moved yeah, over to expanding, yeah. Yeah, and JR is going to ride uh, United, I think. Um, you know, and that's best front-running jock in the country, JR, Johnny Velasquez. Um, here's the point about domestic spending. Didn't Pratt ride him before? Yes, his last three starts. Yeah, was it one of them when he won at Churchill on, on, on Derby Day? Yes. When he dead-eated? Yeah, he should have won that race. He, he got into yes. some trouble, but he, he was, you know, he was able to get him rolling. You know, that, that to me is important because I think Chad Brown is a pretty smart guy. Um, you know, he, he knows who to put on. And, and, and he doesn't have to sell, you know, putting Flavian Pride on domestic spending. You know, because he's Chad Brown, you know, and he's got the yes. horses. So, you know, where Mandela doesn't have a reach outside of California as much, Chad Brown has a reach to go everywhere. Yeah, I'll go one step further. You know what? I'll I'll put I'll put my neck out there right now without even looking at the BBs. I think domestic spending is the most likely winner on Breeders' Cup, uh, both days. Um, I think it's a no-brainer decision, and and we can't forget. I know there's allegiances to trainers and the like. We can't forget a jockey's a businessman just like anyone else. They want to maximize their revenue, and to him, it's a one horse is clearly better, and he's more likely to cash a bigger check with that horse, and so that's just the decision he made. Well, and, and that's and, why I brought and, up and, Bruno, because you, you see them in the morning, and these guys ride them. I mean, they're not going to make the right decision all the time, but I think the best ones are pretty good. So, do you, you know, does that factor in your decision? You know, if Louis jumps off one and jumps, you know, Saez jumps on someone else, that's Saratoga, it matters, right? If he rides both horses and he jumps off of one. Does it matter at the Breeders' Cup? And you, you answered it, Bruno, that you know they're all great jocks, so I think that's part of the answer. Who's the right jock to ride it? Well, the first thing I want to say, thank you, Michael. And the second thing is, I think, I think Pete just took us seriously about Gina showing up because he's already <laughs> mailing it in on the Breeders' Cup turf. <laughs> I just, you know, that horse, I think there was a fluke that he lost in, at Arlington. Um, I thought earlier in the year he, he was the turf equivalent of Nixco, clearly the best turf horse in America. I think the, the, the Churchill problems that race on Derby Day, he's still dead heated for the win. And then that insane performance on Belmont Day put him clearly ahead of the division. And I just, I don't see him losing. There's very few horses that could overcome adversity uh, and win, and he's one of them. Um, so I, you know, I just look at it. Pratt wants to cast a check, and and he he feels very strongly that he's more likely to make money from from domestic spending than he gets from United. Well, yeah, I, Chad Brown is going to put him on a lot more horses. That's bottom line. You know, and domestic spending is no slouch. He's actually very, 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 very good. Um, I, I just think 
it's all going to come down the trip. You never know. But I'll tell you one thing. If I'm going to play domestic spending, I'm going to be playing on that history of, of uh, United running second to bricks and mortar. And I'm going to use United in there somewhere at 35, 40 to one again. No, you're going to get some more value. If I remember correctly, I don't have the PPs in front of me. I, I do think domestic spending won at Del Mar last year as well. He beat Gufo, didn't he? Yes, yeah, he, he won the Gufo. he won the Hollywood Derby there. Yeah, yeah, he beat Gufo and smooth, smooth like, like street. Gufo, yeah. yeah, decorated invader. Yeah, great race yeah. actually. So you know, I I just think like for example with jockeys, they're so you know all those guys that are riding you know in in the Breeders' Cup, they're all so talented. You know, and, and, you know, I will look different if Pfeiffer along on the turf and maybe, you know, on the turf at, at Del Mar where uh, a Flavian Pratt or an Umberto Rispoli is going to have um, a better opportunity to, to because they understand that way that, that turf plays. Um, and, and in the case of the jocks, too, It'll be very interesting to see how, you know, how some of them adapt to, to the main track, especially, you know, if they're going to be in the right spot. Because a lot of guys, a lot of handicappers, and this is the next segment, a lot of handicappers will sit there and map out what they think the race is going to be run like. Who's, they want to know who's going to be where. Well, <clears throat> in a 13 and 14 horse field, you know, good luck trying to figure out who's going to be where or the way the race is going to shape up. You may have an idea, but a lot of handicappers on, on, on that same wavelength create their own narrative. You know, for example, Jackie's Warrior is a speed horse. But if somebody doesn't like Jackie's Warrior, they will make their narrative that he's going to get burnt up on the pace. And they will, they will make that in their own heads and basically cross them out. Well, Jackie's Warrior has shown that he could sit. He sat behind Life is Good. He handled my Life is Good 22 and change split internally the second quarter. And was still able to run them down. So when you look at those things, and if you've missed those things, I don't think you can actually handicap correctly. My point is, is don't have preconceived notions about where a horse is going to be. Do you need to have that, Michael? No, I, I, I think you want to have a general idea. You know, is it going to be a you know a heated pace? Are there several speed horses? <clears throat> You know, where do I want, where do I want my horse? Look, if, like if you had to pick the winner of the race and you said, you know, I like this horse, where do you think he should be, you know, at the backside or where should he be at the beginning of the race? And I feel like that's part of the handicapping process, right? When you're looking at the race, you think, all right, you know what? This is a, this is a heated pace. There's a good chance that the, the closer has a, has a shot to run into some speed or, or look, there's not that much speed and, it might be a stalker type of trip and maybe the horse you like is that like, I feel like those are the variables when you're making a decision, you try to factor in, right? Like, 
And uh, I, I don't know. I, I use all these little things that you guys are saying to a degree. And, and somehow you come up with who runs the best race that day and you try to pick the winner. Pete, do you um, do you need to know where a horse is going to be on the track? I mean, you, you, you want to set that that picture up in your head, right? Um, but but for me, you know, the Breeders' Cup's the best of the best. And like we said earlier, the best horse is going to overcome the track, traffic, things like that. Um, but yeah, no, you 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 want you want to play it out, and you, you know you want you like it. Let's use let's use um, the, the 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 Philly Sprint as an example, right? We we know you got two very very fast horses in there. You got the uh, the Rudy Rod horse, and you got Gamin, right? Um, you know, are they going to duel? Is one going to set off? I mean, we, we have to make those those predictions, or someone's just going to say, "Listen, Gamin's just so much better than everyone else." Doesn't matter where you know how it how it lays out but um you know as handicappers we we theorize we watch the videos we look at the pps and ultimately we make a decision and sometimes the decision is in line with how the race plays out with the trip and sometimes it's not and when you're wrong you just turn the page well let me ask you something guys does trainer record in a breeders cup mean anything to you you know what? It's it's a call because I remember I remember uh, I forgot the horse, uh, but when Sadler won the classic, it was a two years ago. You know he had that horrible yeah, horrible yeah. record, but but the horse just on paper looked like just the right horse, and you know sometimes you have to ignore it. But no, I, I think it's again it's part of the toolbox, especially with the multi race exotics. You know your your, your ticket's too expensive. You need to cut to. I, I think trainer record is something you have to take into account. Well, let's, for example, um, the trainer pattern and what a trainer does. For example, um, and I'm going to talk about this on the Zoom on Friday night. Um, trainer runs a big race with a two-year-old, wins going away easily. Next, next time you see them at the Breeders' Cup and they're shrunken, they're deflated. There's nothing left of them. You know, they've been, you know, basically put through the ringer to get there. And then they get there and there's just not much left. You know, and sometimes I wonder if the trainer wants to run a horse in the Breeders' Cup because he wants to be seen there uh, and, and maybe not beneficial for the horse. And if you see that pattern of more than one year or two years, you know, you have a tendency to actually look at that trainer in a different light and say, okay, you just want to be seen there. You just want to be there. You know, and hoping something, throw it up against the wall and see if it sticks. So so that's the one part of it, the way I look at it. And again, that is my opinion. That is my way of looking at it. And last year, you know, we got paid off when we saw Philly completely emaciated going into the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. We completely threw her out. And I had seen something in the morning that I, I actually, you, you'd be amazed of how, how, how trainers are creatures of habit. They'll do pretty much the same thing every year, you know, and and you can count and count on it. And, and you know, here you have a horse that just won. They bring it back eight to ten days after the big race. They drill it hard. They fast work. And you go, here we go again. And sure enough. And so uh, it, I can understand what their record is because of what they've done in the past and, and, and answer the question, 
Why doesn't this guy do any good in the Breeders' Cup? So do you guys, and I know I asked Pete, Michael, I haven't asked you. Do you use that record of that trainer in the Breeders' Cup as, as maybe uh, a decision maker or, or, or the ability of saying, I can't play this guy. I can't play this horse because the trainer has not shown me that he can get a horse to the Breeders' Cup and win. You know, I, I don't want to cancel a horse because the trainer hasn't won. But I'll look at it another way. You know, I might say, hey, you know, I, you know I'm a big Bill Mott fan. He's had success in the Breeders' Cup. And I think he knows how to bring a horse to be ready to run his best race that day. He's done it before. So in my mind, I'll look at it that way, you know, where, you know, look, I'll tell you, I like the horse art collector. You know, I like that Bill Mott has him in his barn. I think, you know, and I think the other trainer was a fantastic horse trainer, but I think Bill Mott has had success with great horses. And when you give him something to work with, he's proven he's going to get the horse ready to run his best race. So it, it does matter to me. You know, I feel like you have to give some of those trainers the nod that they're not going to run a horse just to be there because they've been there already. You know, I don't think Mott w- would run a horse just to say I ran a horse in the Breeders' Cup. He's running to win. No, he would. No, he would. Right. right? So correct. I think certain guys that you have to think about that, you know, like, so that's kind of my thought. You know, like, look, I remember when DeHaas won off the long layoff. And I remember that race. And I remember that, I think it was Michael Dickinson, if I'm correct, mm-hmm. who was very good at getting horses ready. I remember. I remember this, this is a guy that can do this. And I also, there was another turf horse. I think Bill Mott won with a $100 horse off of a year layoff. He's, he's a big, he breeds big up in Woodbine now. It's on the tip of my tongue. Turf, turf Breeders' Cup champion. So I, I feel like certain guys know how to do it and they've done it before and you have to give them a look. So, yeah, for me, it does matter. I think certain guys are thinking about that race only, right? They might run three or four races knowing that his best race is coming after that third race. And his thought is the Breeders' Cup the whole way. Yeah, I'll, and, I'll, add, and... I'll add one more thing to what Michael said. I, I'm more likely to eliminate the disproven trainers in certain spots versus the unproven ones. And, and I'll, gi- I'll give you one example for this year. And, and Bruno, you're, 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 you're always kind of preaching, you know, trust your eye over everything. Um, the Phil D'Amato horse in the juvenile Phillies ain't easy. I mean, visually, I, I think that that horse just looked amazing last race. And, you know, Phil D'Amato is a great trainer, but he's mostly known for, you know, route horses on turf where he tends to do his best work. I don't remember too many juvenile fillies he entered, if ever. You would maybe know more than I do. but And, and the figures are, are a little lighter than some of the, you know, the big barn horses. But I, I, just, I just look at the way that she moves and how easy she won last time and how she looked like she had so much more to give. And, you know, I'm not going to uh, eliminate that horse and I'm not going to hold back and betting that horse aggressively just because it's not a space where D'Amato has, has a track record of success. And you can make the same argument for Brett Calhoun and Hidden Connection. Um, you know, Brett Calhoun, you don't see his name at the Breeders' Cup very often. 
And um, he's he's a guy that, you know, has a very talented horse. Um, you know, you see the Steve Asmussons, you know, those guys. And, you know, you, ha- you know, Brad Cox shows up with another really nice two-year-old filly named Juju's Map. Um, overall, overall, Pete, you're absolutely correct. Um, two questions, one for Michael and one for Pete. Pete, on Bella Sophia, Rudy Rodriguez. We never see Rudy at the Breeders' Cup. We really, really rarely see Rudy with a really big horse. How do you handle that? She's a fast filly. Um, I think she has one way of going. And, and I'm, I'm going to just, I'm giving her a shot. I mean, I think, I think that horse in particular is going to be ready. She, she just, she fires every time. I think she's going right to the lead. She's going to let Gamine respond. And who knows? Who knows how the track's playing at the time, how good she is. You know, she hasn't faced uh, as tough a competition. Um, but uh, I think at that, you know, I, I don't think about the trainer so much in that space. I look at the horse that's really done nothing wrong, and you have to give the horse a long look. Now, Michael, you brought up Art Collector. I'm going to sort of argue with you a little bit that, our collector is not much different than he was with Tom Drury. Um, I, I really thought Tom did a great job for, with him. Um, I think Mott got him to, to the level that he showed um, during the summer, last summer, where maybe, you know, not being able to run in the Derby, losing time, running, you know, in the Preakness and just, didn't do him, you know, did, didn't do that horse, uh, you know, didn't do that horse any good. And I think Mott got him right. But do you think he's actually better for Mott? I don't know. I, I The last race, and, and I'm obviously, you know, we all have an opinion. I was pretty impressed with the Woodward. And it made me feel like that he was a pretty mature horse who did it pretty easily. You know, I, I, that's what I thought. I, th- I just thought he ran a, a fairly easy race. And, and you know, I, I think Mott knows how to put the finishing touches on a horse, if that makes sense. He knows yeah. how to get them that yeah. extra. And I don't know what he does, right? I don't, I don't know how these guys train. But obviously he's a special, you know, Hall of Fame guy. And I think that's the difference between those Hall of Fame guys. They do something a little different. I, I know Baffert used to have three different horses work with his great horses so that he could keep them going. And I think Mod is one of those guys where he, he knows how to trick a horse to get his best. And uh, I, I don't know. I, I happen to be a fan of Mott. And I haven't looked at all the posts, you know, you know, the past performances of the big race. But he's a horse in the back of my head that I've been looking at thinking he's got a shot to maybe run a big race. Nobody's talking about him. I hear Nick's go all day long <coughs> and the three-year-old. And I, I like that. I like a horse that's kind of flying under the radar with a top-notch trainer. And, uh, you know, I don't mind the jock either. Um, we'll talk about the art collector style and dynamic because he isn't going to get the lead. Um, yeah, but he's and, got a lot. I, I, I could. I, I think Mike's 100% though, Bruno. That horse, that horse, not only is he talented, 
and has a little bit more seasoning, but he's very tactical as well. I don't think he needs to lead. I he can sit right off of him. I don't know about that. You know, we have to go back a year to really see that he, you know, well, he came, he, you know, he, he rallied, he sat behind Swiss Skydiver. Yeah, he was good that day, and he was Swiss Skydiver. I love Swiss Skydiver that day, and he beat her. And that was a year ago. But my whole point is that I don't – see, Michael brought up a point. And he, and he brought up a great point that certain trainers do something different like mine. Some trainers take horses and they work them fast. And then they work them fast again. And then they run them. Well, Mott is a little different. Mott will let them run a little bit. He won't, he won't set them down to work really fast, like seven-eighths and 124 and change, and out a mile and 38 and change. He won't do that where other trainers would, with that same horse did, but when Mott will come back seven days before the race, go with an easy 50. There's a lot of young trainers who haven't learned to do that. They just like the week before they're going 46 and change or, you know, they're going 59. They think they're Baffert. They can't be Baffert, you know, because there's only one Baffert and, 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 and that's the problem that what a lot of these guys have is these young guys that these young guys are, are, um, are too quick to run horses off those big works. So now you get our collector going over to the Mott's barn and he is sitting there and he's giving them an easy, you know, 50, 48, 49, you know, he's not, over taxing them the week before the race and and i have seen horses improve dramatically just because of that that one little easy 50 and look who does that kind of work steve asmussen the last work before a race they were going 39 50 they're not doing much same thing with mark cassie you know so those guys especially asmussen if you want to really look at a pattern of how to get horses ready Look at how Steve Hasmussen, right before the race, never works them fast. Um, if they work really fast for other barns, there's other reason. There's a horse running it this week at at um, at Keeneland from the Grand Motion Barn. He's at Tappet, and I I saw he went 34 flat. His three eighths before he you know he ran uh, before before this week. His last work was a 34 flat, and. I had to look at it again and say, wait a minute, this horse went 34. When does motion work like that? It wasn't motion. It was the, it, the horse is a tap it. So I guarantee you, he did not want to go that fast. The horse went faster like that, probably ran off. So my whole idea is, is sometimes when people see that, they go, ooh, I got to bet this horse. And they, they, they're looking for that race in the morning to justify them betting in them out in the afternoon. And you can't do that. You have got to understand that you cannot run a horse 34 flat a week before. And nine out of 10 horses are going to bounce to the moon the next time, you know, when they run them. And then people wonder, well, what happened? He worked fast or he did this, you know. Well, you know, he did too much. And each horse yeah. is different. And each horse is going to respect. It's going to, it's going to handle it in their own way. But, you know, most of them can't handle that. And especially young trainers have a habit of doing that. And the cheaper horses are definitely not the ones that are going to handle that. 
maiden horses, two-year-olds that are just now starting to get their strength are not going to handle that. You almost got to handle them with kid gloves. So when you're looking at patterns and you're looking at things like you mentioned, Mike, about Mott and doing the things, he does things on a very conservative side and he leaves something for the race on, on, in, in the afternoon where some other guys are just way too happy to work fast because they think that's, you know, going to tell them that the horse is doing well and what happens, they bounce to the moon. So uh, on that note, guys, we covered a lot of ground. And um, so did Pete and his walk. And he's got a knock on the door. So Pete's had a good night. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, let's go. Uh, one uh, final thought. Pete, what's your final thought that you, the final thing that you prep for, for the Breeders' Cup? Don't change what you do as a handicapper because it's the Breeders' Cup. Go through your regiment. Make your decisions. If you feel strong about something, bet. I think too many guys bet too much on Breeders' Cup Day. And it's not easy to win on Breeders' Cup Day. You know, you got big fields, you got great horses. Sometimes it's splitting hairs. Um, to win in this game is it's a marathon, not a sprint. Go through your regiment, make smart decisions. You lose a race, turn the page. And uh, that goes for every day and even more so on the big days. And go answer your door. Um, Michael. Close us off. So, Play the Mariano Rivera and close it out. You know, I, I do a lot of tricks with my mind handicapping, and sometimes I'll handicap the race with a time limit, which is kind of funny, in my, you know, where I'm not overthinking. Like, all right, who's the winner? And I got three minutes to figure it out. And I'll just write the number down, and I'll go to the next race, and I'll do the same thing. And then I'll look at it the next day, and I'll study it a little more. And what, what I find happens is a lot of times I come back to my gut. So I, I play a lot of different mind tricks with handicapping, especially if I'm in a slump. And I'll say with the Breeders' Cup, and I think Pete kind of said it, don't change what you do. You know, go with your gut, read it quick. You know, your eyes tell you what you see. Don't overthink things. You know, I think a lot of guys are trying to invent the wheel. And, and you don't have to on Breeders' Cup Day. The prices are there. There's a ton of value. And I'll, I'll say one last thing, box everything on Breeders' Cup Day. I don't care if you love the horse, box them. Don't, don't just play straight. You, you get huge value underneath, and you might get lucky and catch a, catch a bomber, and, and, and you get these crazy numbers just by boxing and wheeling a horse you love. So that, that's my two cents, Bruno. Michael, I knew it. I knew that you were a clocker at heart. Get more from Bruno by going to racingwithbruno.com.